This is The Law School Show. Discovering the person behind the resume. Bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now, on The Law School Show. Hi everyone, this is Chelsea and I'm your host for this episode for The Law School Show. Today we're going to be talking about cybersecurity in the legal field. I'm joined by Patrick Dunlop. How are you doing today, Patrick? I'm doing great, Chelsea. Thanks for asking. Thank you. So we're just going to get started on the episode. Would you please introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah, so uh, my name is Patrick Dunlop. I work for a company called Inquisitive Intel out of Ottawa. Uh, We specialize in things around digital forensics, forensic accounting, digital privacy, cybersecurity, and fraud investigations. And uh, what we do is we help law firms, corporations, and private citizens with uh, in trying to bridge the gap between cybersecurity and the digital field and law and also um, for board of directors and companies along those lines. Uh, what I do particularly is I specialize in digital and cryptocurrency investigations. Wow, that's so interesting. Such a diverse uh, amount of fields that you guys do cover. Um, so let's get started. What do you do in general in order to secure your virtual client meetings? Like, What would you recommend that lawyers use? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so regarding virtual client meetings, the, the simple answer when it comes to me, I would avoid them at all costs. Um, because when, when you start to use virtual client meetings and you start to use these third parties, we start to see, especially when they're free, such as Zoom, free to access, you become the actual product, really. So um, if you look to use like a Microsoft Teams or a Zoom, um, what I would do is I would try to increase the security settings as much as possible, um, such as altering meeting IDs, uh, setting meeting passwords, everything along those lines. But if you look back in around uh, July of 2021, Zoom actually got in a class action lawsuit uh, regarding sharing data with third parties. Um, yeah, so and my, my rule of thumb is when the service is free, you're often the product, like you see with Facebook and other social networks. So what do you mean by you're often the product? Like, what is product? Yeah, so so your data is really, it, it's it's more valuable than gold these days, essentially, um, where, where companies will package up your data and they will sell it for marketing purposes or uh, AI purposes or the, it doesn't really matter who who's the individual buying is, but what they do is, is they, they gather all this information, they package it into data sets, and they sell them off. So it's kind of like big chunks of, um, some people would say personal information, some people would say it's more business information, but this is what we're starting to see, especially with the class action lawsuit, um, where they're sharing their da- your data with third parties, such as marketers and things along those lines. So what would you say is the most overlooked security measure a lawyer should take on a virtual platform? Yeah. Um, so when we talk about virtual platforms, um, it, it's every time you employ another virtual platform, the, the risk of things such as cyber phishing or um, people posing as you to communicate with your clients or, uh, for example, with Zoom, um, we've seen very recently where your inbox is flooded with uh, Zoom invites, right? And cyber criminals try to leverage things like this, where they, they make a Zoom invite, which is actually a cyber phishing scam, which can uh, load malware onto your computer or uh, do all kinds of different things along those lines. Spyware, particularly, is another one, um, all kinds of different things. But when you want to secure yourself on these digital platforms, um, 
you can get great get great endpoint security. You can get all kinds of different uh, services that really secure you up. But at the end of the day, the key that's getting you into that account to communicate with your clients or to access your clients' information um, is your email and password. So when, when you at your law firm or you at school, uh, you're using your email and you're taking it and you're going to use it at Amazon and you're going to use it at uh, the gym, when those third parties get breached with a cyber attack or a hack, um, a lot of that information often gets dumped onto the open internet. So uh, we'll see emails and passwords and usernames and IP addresses and phone numbers and everything someone needs to, to pretend to be you. Um, for example, when uh, right before recording this episode, I took a look at um, one of our data sources for all of this breach credential information. And for example, we were seeing about 81,675 breach email credentials. And that's so often a combination of emails and passwords or email and IP address. But from that pivot point, the cyber criminals will uh, pivot towards trying to find more information about you, uh, such as your dog's, the name of your first pet, which they can probably find on your Instagram or um, all kinds of different things. Uh, and when we work with law firms traditionally, it, it's a very similar situation where um, they're not aware. There's two types of uh, law firms or companies in general, the ones that have been cyber attacked or the ones that don't know yet. So we're, we're starting to see there's, there's a, a little bit of a, a divide in the, in the sense of, of that kind of thing. So what measures do you think that law firms can take in order to avoid such, such a ripple effect, let's say? Yeah, so, so it's, it's company policy is, is a very big thing that I, I believe particularly can help secure these companies, um, or cybersecurity audits. Uh, if, if you work at a company, it's very unlikely that they do regular cybersecurity audits. Um, but it, it's, it's getting the individuals at the firm to reduce password recycling or, or use your firm email outside of work. Um, by just using it for work, uh, that reduces your, your liability extremely. Or uh, also getting endpoint protection for your devices and encrypt uh, encryptions, things along those lines. Because I think a stat, um, don't quote me on this, but I think in 2019 there was, there was a stat that came out about 44% of law firms use file encryption. And even fewer use email encryption, which are the, the kind of last line of defense when it's protecting your data. So when you say email uh, encryption, is that when you secure an email and then you have to put in like your additional code, let's say, in order to open up the email? Yeah, it, it can be all kinds of different things. Um, it, it can be on the back end where uh, when it's stored, because when, when you go to access, there's the, there's the client-facing thing for all these software providers, and that would be your email account. But sometimes, um, depending on how you have it set up or how your IT is set up, some people have the email servers on site. So uh, it depends on legislation and where, where you choose to practice and things along those lines. But uh, the encryption side of things is, is encrypting the actual data between you and your client at the end of the day. And uh, often people will need a, an encryption key to unlock it or it, it's just a, a safe place to place all your data. So with the trend in the industry having submerged into the whole online field where courts are held online, how do you find that the court system, and I'm not sure if you can comment on this, is dealing with all of the Zoom meetings that they're providing clients with in order for judges to kind of host Zoom trials? Uh, absolutely. So 
Oh, using Zoom as a intermediary for for trials and things like that. I think they're doing their best they can right now with with COVID. Obviously, the it's it's not the best place to hold their, uh, a, a trial, in my personal opinion, because I think there's a lot of a lot of things that are uh, whether they be subliminal messaging or things along those lines where it is, it's very difficult to interact with. From a security perspective, um, if, it's, if there's a media ban in a trial, that's another thing that makes it very difficult to secure these things, right? Where now you're trusting all this information with a third party. Um, but host using it as, as a tool to host trials, I wouldn't be as worried about rather than when you're having personal communications with uh, your client under solicitor-client privilege. And protecting the solicitor-client privilege, I think, would be the most important thing when you're, when you're using these different forms of communication. So how would you say someone can ensure that client information is safely stored? Or is there a better way to, to have it on a separate device? Like, what recommended steps do you think someone should take? Yeah, um, it, it, it comes down to cyber hygiene at the end of the day. And, and it comes down to... How are you storing this? Because there's a billion different ways that you can store this kind of stuff. You can have cloud storage, or you can have your local servers on site, or you can just completely trust another external IT company to manage all your files, right? And it's depending on how that is set up really changes my my answer. And uh, but when when it comes to securing client information, um, the thing that I would be worried about the most is is the, the password recycling, the using of, of your credentials to access your information outside, and also um, not knowing where, where you should have regular security audits because it's very possible you could have ransomware, you can have uh, spyware on your system, and you're not aware, particularly spyware. We've had uh, situations with our company where we've gone to businesses and uh, they, they're saying we're having issues where invoices are being sent out and... Uh, they're being deleted from the email server, and we don't know really what's happening here. And this is a trend that we've seen over and over again with company to company. And there's spyware on their systems. They're just not aware of it. Um, so it, it's very easy to say everything's secure when you're not actually looking, right? So what uh, type of triggers do you think someone can kind of pay more attention to, whether it's on their network or on their emails, something that should trigger that maybe I do have an issue on my computer? Yeah, um, Absolutely. Uh, for, for, for a really good audit, I, I would always recommend hiring an external company. Um, but there are very great software uh, solutions that people can employ to just scan their computer for malware. Uh, one of my favorites is Malwarebytes. It's, a, it's free. It's, there's also a paid version where it scans your system for malware. Or uh, when you receive a file, loading it into a, a third-party service like VirusTotal. Um, these are just like simple hygiene things that are really, really important when it comes to securing your business, in my personal opinion. I like the use of hygiene. That's the first time I've heard it in this type of field. Cyber, cyber hygiene? <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's an inquisitive intel trademark, that one. That's a good one. Um, so what would you say is the new trend in the virtual space, like relating to the law system and the court system? Oh, this, this is a really, really good question. Um, New trends that we're seeing, uh, something I, I personally, I'm very, very involved in uh, cryptocurrency and blockchain technology. Um, something really cool that we're seeing is NFTs embedded into legal, legal documents and legal contracts. 
I'm just going to interrupt you. What's an NFT? Yeah, so uh, essentially, let's, let's bring it back one more step. Um, with the emergence of uh, blockchain technology, and when I say blockchain, uh, people think Bitcoin, and it's a currency, and it's fraud, and it's all bad. But uh, the blockchain, essentially, it's just an infrastructure. And imagine a big Excel spreadsheet that every computer in the world agrees that that spreadsheet is true at a specific given time. So when you go back to, let's talk about Internet version one, it was just websites. And we can all remember to our, uh, my early childhood where there was just websites and this was this new space is exploding and you can go and read things. And that was really only it. You can read things. And that's about it. Sometimes you could send an email and have a little bit of communication, but it wasn't that great. And then Internet version two was the reading and writing in real time, where we started to see social medias explode, like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and uh, MySpace back in the day. And now we're starting um, to roll into this new field, which is I, we like to call Internet version three, which is ownership of the Internet, where everyone has a basket that's imaginary. And every computer in the world agrees that everything in that basket is yours. So, yeah, it's really interesting. So um, it can be things from art. It can be things from email addresses. But imagine a world where when you load, uh, when I talk about trusting third parties and you're the, you're the product, imagine every time you load a photo into Facebook, you don't actually own that photo anymore. Facebook owns that photo, right? Um, and they can run data analytics and they can do all kinds of crazy things with it. But um, with blockchain, if you have a social media that's on the blockchain and I load a photo into it, it's still my photo because it's in my basket of things and all the computers in the world agree that it's in my basket of things. Sorry, I just going to interrupt. How does that differ from storing a picture on Facebook versus a blockchain? Like what, what, what's the difference between blockchain and Facebook? Uh, the difference between blockchain and Facebook is that, uh, Facebook owns all the data, but on the blockchain, you still own your data. So for uh, it, it's, it's essentially the blockchain is that every user on the blockchain has a wallet address. And when we say wallet, it's just a basket of things everyone agrees on. That is yours. So if I have a, a third party that is a blockchain social network, and these are starting to evolve, where my account is actually mine. They don't own your account. So if I want to take uh, a good example would be, imagine you could take your Gmail email address and then go over to Yahoo and use it on Yahoo. That's something that, that you can't really do at this time, but it's something that would be very easy to employ with this blockchain technology. So what we're starting to see in the legal field is they're embedding little tokens into contracts. So when you sign a contract these days and you decide... Uh, and something, one thing leads to another, and then you end up in a lawsuit. When the contract is signed, at the end of the day, in my personal opinion, I'm not a lawyer, obviously, but uh, it, it's a he said, she said about, you signed the contract, no, I didn't sign the contract. So what these NFT technologies bring to the table is that if someone signs a contract, it's this day at this time, the contract was sent to this person, it was signed, and every computer in the entire world agrees that it was signed. So it kind of takes the who, what, where out of the equation. And now you just have to focus on the why. Would that be when you see on, let's say, PDFs, like Adobe, where it's like stamped with like the specific like timestamp and then there's sometimes an IP address, let's say. Is that what you're referring to? Yeah, that's a great example. When it comes to that, you're trusting Adobe. 
And then are you going to get Adobe to come testify? <laughs> this is something that's probably not going to happen. But since Adobe is a private company, it's not really an open aud audit trail to figure out how did this happen and when, when was it sent back and forth? You don't really get the whole story. You just get a stamp of appeal uh, from, from Adobe where they say, this is great. But uh, it's really unlikely that they're going to come and they're going to testify to this. But when you use a blockchain, it's completely open for anyone to audit. And you can go and watch the transactions and the whole nine yards. Um, I'm trying to think uh, of other things right now. Um, and moving from, from the blockchain stuff to cryptocurrencies and cryptocurrency recovery, um, we're starting to see, and this is an unfortunate trend in my personal opinion, but we're starting to see a lot of people, uh, when they get their Bitcoin robbed from them, who do you really go to at this time? Um, you can attempt to go to the police or you can attempt to go to another authority, but uh, at the end of the day, they're not really getting, they're not really getting investigated because there's a very big gap between the current state of the internet and ownership and currencies and free markets that are occurring over there and the actual digital literacy of a lot of police forces. And we're starting to see the RCMP slowly get into it. Um, and they're doing their best to keep up with the information. But um, a trend that we're seeing a lot is people are electing to go civilly to recover their stolen uh, cryptocurrency rather than uh, going criminally with the, the government. Do you find that lawyers are understanding the way the industry is kind of moving in order? Are laws caught up with the way that things are going with crypto and the civil suits that are taking place? The, the laws aren't there. And um, it takes a long time for laws to evolve. And uh, there's a lot of debate that occurs. But the thing is that the internet goes at about a thousand miles an hour and it's not stopping anytime soon. So we're seeing the internet evolve so quickly and then it's always playing the catch up game where um, it's very difficult and I completely understand uh, where they're coming from when it comes to, it's, it's difficult to understand these things and uh, cyber criminals are using it to launder money and, and uh, businesses are using it to launder money as well. And it's a very easy tool to, to adopt, but it's not an easy tool to investigate. And that's where we're starting to see a lot of people go civilly and they're hiring outside help, such as companies like uh, ours, Inquisitive Intel, where uh, it's, it's starting to, uh, they're starting to need the private sector to come in and, and help with situations like this to help with recovery. And uh, civilly can, is essentially the only way to get that right now. This is something that I've never considered before, just how it's evolving and how the legal system is looking amalgamate like the two the two together where it's going at a thousand miles an hour and then we're just not caught up uh, absolutely and we're starting to see very interesting things where uh, it's not just uh, individuals it's, it's big corporations that are losing hundreds of millions of dollars and uh, this is where we're starting to see if the government doesn't catch up quick enough um, the cryptocurrency brokerages are going to become judge jury and executioner very quickly uh, where they they're the only people that want fraud off their platform because it makes them not look professional, number one. And number two is they have the ability to track all these individuals, freeze their, their accounts, and do all of these things. Uh, and there's no, there's no uh, court orders. There's nothing involved. They can, they can just do it at this time because the legislation's not there. 
So based on the discussion that we've had, where's your hypothesis on what cybersecurity is going to look like as it continues to evolve with time? Yeah, um, this is a really good question. Uh, right now, uh, we're, we're starting to see everyone's focus on ransomware uh, because of the colonial pipeline attack and it crippled the United States for a few days, which is something that, that it, it has a lot of attention on. And um, r- ransomware in particular uh, is something that companies are starting to realize is not a great thing to occur to them because you have two options and both of them um, kind of suck. <laughs> where you have you can either pay up with your cryptocurrency and then they're going to uh, the the ransomware criminals are going to do as much as they can to um, launder different ways and put it in cryptocurrency mixers and mix it all around so it's very hard to track um, and the other option if you don't pay up is that you have the liability of all your client information getting dumped onto the open internet um, so you're kind of between a rock and a hard place and we're, we're uh, for example, uh, the Halifax, well, uh, the Halifax hospitals. Um, I'm not sure if it was the QE2 or the Victoria General, or the whole system in general. Um, they got breached a few months ago, and uh, they didn't pay the ransom, but they they gave their employees a uh, a one year credit monitoring as as their um, <laughs> as, as kind of like the payment for. Okay, I'm sorry, we screwed up, but that's that's not enough accountability in the situation where you have to be really accountable because this might affect your employees or your clients 10 years down the line where people are taking, criminals are taking loans out in their name and accessing their bank accounts and doing all kinds of crazy things. So we're starting to see companies and governments take it more seriously. And uh, with that, we're starting to see an increase in cybersecurity posture that's really, really important um, in my personal opinion because uh Right now, uh, a lot of companies are lacking in this particular space, and it's a very easy space to avoid. And uh, what a lot of companies do is they hire an IT guy, and they say it's, uh, he's just the IT guy, and he does everything. It's, it's a one hat for everything, and it's not something that's very working very well anymore. Um, spyware, uh, malware, uh, other kinds of different malwares are, are something that companies don't like right now, and they're doing their best to uh, increase their posture against that. But in, so that's kind of a little bit in the near future. When we start looking in the, in the distant future, um, I think there's going to be kind of this tipping point where quantum computing is going to be coming around. What, what's quantum computing? It, it's, a very, it's a very hard topic to explain, and I, I don't think I would do it justice by explaining it myself. But um, it's... it's, it's computing power that has the power to crack encryptions very well. And we talked a little bit earlier about encryptions. Um, and if, if these computers have this power in the hands of threat actors, whether it be foreign governments or intelligence agencies or your everyday cyber criminal, um, what we see is that when, when a big innovation occurs, um, the first people to exploit it are always the criminals. Right? If you go all the way back to the start of the railroad, the first people to exploit the railroad were the bandits, right? And they, they uh, in the remote area, were going to rob this train. And then we started to seeing early emails where there was phishing attacks and login to this and all these different things. And um, once we get to the blockchain space right now, we're seeing a lot of fraud. And that's the evolving space right now as the criminals are the first to adopt. Um, and then... I, I can't, it's hard to wrap my head around what the quantum computing situation will be, but uh, what I do know for sure is I think it's going to change the landscape of, 
the digital sphere significantly. What steps do you think law firms can just take besides adding like malware on their computers in order to just better secure their networks? Because a lot of people are working from home now as well. Mm -hmm. Not everyone is necessarily always linked up to a secure network, especially if it's a smaller law firm in dealing with clients. Is there any tips that you can give uh, our listeners? Absolutely. It's, it's really interesting you brought the work from home argument up because I didn't think about that one. Um, when you go home and you leave your secure network, uh, whatever security you may have, um, some law firms invest heavily into cybersecurity. They may have the most secure network in the world. But as soon as your lawyers start working from home, um, they, they're not as protected where um, your lawyers are unlikely using VPNs or um, when was the last time they updated their router? And some people are probably listening saying, I didn't know you could update your router. But it, yeah, exactly. It's, it's just things like this where um, you're taking these devices, you're taking them off site back to your house where you're on this network that's likely not secure, could be compromised already. And now you have these devices and you're bringing them back to your secure office where um, these devices might already have malware or ransomware or spyware or all these different types of of uh, malwares on them. And then this is, this is very, very easy to infect your entire network. And then, um, so if I was a, a law firm bringing people back from the work from home movement or currently have um, lawyers or assistants or um, articling students working from home, I think it would be very smart to invest into a, a cybersecurity audit or at least at the very minimum have your, uh, your team working with VPNs and having a little bit of endpoint security. Okay. And then to, to wrap up, I guess, the episode, I have one final question. Can law firms build their own court system? Like their own, like, I don't know if that's something that's in the realm of possibility where it's kind of more secure, or let's say there's a platform that can be created in your opinion. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I, I think that there, there's definitely a lot of companies that are thinking about that right now. Because um, it, it would be an easy segue for, uh, for example, an e-discovery company to get into that field and start have, hosting these, these secure um, court systems is what, what you're saying. Um, I, I think it's entirely possible. It would be for, a, for law firms themselves to do it alone, it would be a very big investment to develop a system like that. Um, but I think over the course of time, I think it's going to, at the end of the day, rely on the governments. Uh, civil mediation, that's a different thing. And uh, I, I could see uh, a company appearing where they can really capitalize on, on the, in the civil area. But at the end of the day, it relies on the government, uh, whatever jurisdiction your, um, your court is in, to get to that phase where they have a really secure platform if they continue to choose to do trials virtually. Okay, not to put you on the spot, Patrick, but is there any last-minute advice that you'd like to give our listeners or main takeaways on cybersecurity in general? Yeah, if I was to give one main takeaway, um, I think it would be really, it's very, very, very important for um, students right now or uh, current lawyers right now to look into the digital landscape currently because... The, the, the digital literacy of, of a lot of um, law firms or even judges or uh, crown attorneys or everyone in the space, um, there's a very, very big
big gap between the current stage of the internet and the understanding of what it is. And when you're trying to um, give legal arguments in, the, in this area, um, uh, a good example is, uh, is a friend of ours of the companies um, who works with us. He says that he, he went to a, a trial and uh, he was an expert witness and, and he said, um, so, uh, so the defendant was on his browser doing such and such. And, and the first thing the judge said, he's looked at him and he said, what's a browser? So these, these big gaps in understanding is, is a very, very um, difficult thing. And this, I think it's something that we have to get around and we have to increase that digital literacy. And we're seeing it right now in primary school where kids are learning the code. And I, I think if we're at that stage with our public school system, I think something has to occur in the legal field as well, where we need to understand what is happening around us. We need to understand when someone gets their cryptocurrency stolen, what happened there and, and an understanding of, of how can we fix this or how do these things transfer to each other and how do these NFT works work. When we have this whole economy running essentially under our noses right now and it's getting adopted more and more and more every day. And I, I think there is a, uh, there's a cryptocurrency brokerage in the States that um, register, uh, attempted to register as a bank the other day. Wow, that's so interesting. Well, we have we have this this crazy gold rush of this new infrastructure blockchain, and I think it's very important for everyone to get on board and understand, at least have a basic understanding of what is going on in that field. Well, thank you so much, Patrick, for joining us on the Law School Show, and thank you to our listeners for listening in on this episode. I hope you all have a great day. You've just been listening to The Law School Show. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and now on Spotify, or on our website at thelawschoolshow.com. If you liked what you heard, like us again on Facebook, or follow us on Twitter for the latest updates. Human stories, new legal topics, and career-advancing advice right to your earbuds. Catch it all here, next time on The Law School Show.